Stage Door Sessions by Broadway Direct. In this podcast, we have in-depth conversations with Broadway's brightest, bringing you what's new, what's noteworthy, and what's coming next to a stage near you. I'm your host, Elisa Gardner, and this spring we'll be speaking with some of the artists whose talents are standing out at a very busy time in a very busy Broadway season. But before our conversation with each week's guest, this season we'll be kicking off every episode with a look at what's new on Broadway each week with Broadway Direct's own Paul Artsmith, who is here with me today. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, doing well. I'm trying to stay cool because it's finally, you know, really heating up in New York. I feel like it went from zero to 100 like right away. Not in degrees, yeah. but you know. Oh, yeah. Summer <laughs> is here and it was a hot news week as well. A lot of stuff going yes. on. This week. Yeah. yeah. I thought we'd get some bad news out of the way. Um, mm-hmm. Closing announcements are never easy to make. And this week, unfortunately, there was another one. Bad Cinderella will close on Broadway June 4th at the Imperial Theater. Um, this is the new musical from Andrew Lloyd Webber and it will shutter after 30 three preview performances and 85 regular performances with this closing and with the recent closing of phantom of the opera this will also mark the end of an era in a sense um this will be the first time since 1979 without an andrew lloyd webber musical running on broadway so after june 4th that you know historic streak ends yeah 43 years it's said in variety and as you mentioned, you know, he's had shows on that have been hits. Uh, well, predating that, of course, with Joseph and Jesus Christ Superstar. But there was Evita, Cat, Starlight Express, School of Rock, Sunset Boulevard. It's going to be strange to have a uh, Broadway without Andrew Lloyd Webber, however, mixed my feelings <laughs> about some of his shows. Um, certainly, it's, it's, been a, it's been a rough, rough year for him, you know, from a personal standpoint and with two shows closing on Broadway. Um, you know, I'm certainly... Wishing him the best right now. And, you know, I'm sure he'll he'll be pulling something out of his hat at some point. He never seems to stop writing. Yeah, I'm sure he won't be gone for long. There'll probably be a revival or something of one of his works back. But yeah, I'm also, you know, these closing announcements are never easy and sending love to that cast. Just want to also shout out Carolee Carmelo and Grace McLean, who are definitely two standouts in that show. And we had them on an episode of Stage Door Sessions just very recently. So go ahead and give that conversation a listen. But yeah, definitely two standouts of that show. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They were great on the podcast and they are great in the show and will be, I guess, for another few weeks. Yeah. And, you know, we'll always be looking for their next project. Yeah. Moving on to some happier news. Get ready, Succession fans, because Kendall Roy himself is heading to Broadway. I'm talking, of course, about actor Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall Roy on the Emmy Award winning series. He will return to Broadway early next year in the classic play An Enemy of the People. This wow. new Broadway production will be directed by Sam Gold and feature a new adaptation by Amy Herzog, who who's currently represented on Broadway in A Doll's House with that being a new adaptation by her as well. Yeah. Yeah. This is cool because I love Ibsen and I love Succession. <laughs> I yeah, me too. With that show. I, I was saying to my husband last Sunday night, what are we going to do after there's only two <laughs> more episodes? Like it, it can't end. These people are part of my life now. Um, and uh, he's wonderful on the show and, and he's gotten a lot of press, not just for being wonderful on the show, but also because uh, he has this very intense approach to acting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe he worked with Daniel 
Day-Lewis, maybe as an assistant, and um, has a kind of method-like approach, which will be interesting to see how he brings this to uh, this role. He's playing Dr. Thomas Stockman, who um, I guess you could draw some parallels with Kendall. He uh, <laughs> Stockman doesn't take his family's money, so that's <laughs> that's a big difference. Big difference. But, um, <laughs> but it's definitely a role that requires a lot of intensity, and it'll be... Um, a great thing to see him on Broadway, I think, for the first time since he made his debut, which was uh, 2008, I think, in a of uh, Man for All Seasons. So this will be great. Yeah, it'll be great to have him back on stage. I mean, yeah, that was so long ago now. And he has had such a claim since, you know, particularly for succession. And yeah, that intensity you mentioned, I mean, that's just going to serve a Broadway audience well. I think it's going to be quite the experience. And yeah, it'll be great to have him on stage. And I mean, we have Ariane on Broadway right now. He's um, in A Doll's House. I f- his mm-hmm. character's name's escaping me on Succession, but he was also oh, yeah. a Tony nominated um, this year. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And he, we actually got a chance to speak with him at the Meet the Nominees ceremony. We asked him about which Succession character he'd like to see, you know, take on Broadway in this show. He suggested that Cousin Greg do a noises off on Broadway. So maybe that'll be in the spinoff series from succession is cousin Greg taking on Broadway. But yeah, the whole cast has to come to Broadway. I like Jay Smith Cameron, of course, who's a great theater actress and Sarah Snook has to come to Broadway. Yeah. I would love to see Sarah Snook. Bring them all. There's such great actors. And now in cast recording news, which there was a lot of cast recording news this week, K-pop officially released its original Broadway cast recording. So if you missed that in its short run in the fall, you can, go ahead and give that a listen it's a tony nominated score it's definitely worth you know streaming on spotify apple music wherever you get your songs and also released this week was a first listen to the sweeney todd cast recording with the opening number now available to stream so you can get a little taste of what josh groban is doing in that titular role and lastly new york new york announced a cast recording is on the way officially dropping next month so Lots of new music to check out or, you know, anticipate adding to your music library. So keep an eye out for all of those. Yes. And I'm sure it's absolutely no coincidence that these are all being released right ahead of the Tony Awards. <laughs> but, uh, but it's great. Listen, any excuse, because these are all, um, you know, there's some beautiful singing in all of these shows. Uh, K-pop was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. the score and the dancing. I mean, I'll, I'll miss the dancing and all the showmanship. Yeah. I guess you can close your eyes and imagine it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm happy that that score is getting recognized um, yeah, in yeah, this award season. And this week on Broadway Direct, we have a new piece with platinum recording artist Jojo, who's currently starring as Satine in the Tony Award winning show, Moulin Rouge the Musical. And as we are in the midst of Tony season, stay tuned all month long as we give you exclusive content of this year's nominees. As always, you can head to Broadway Direct for the latest coverage and news on Broadway. As as well as across all of our social platforms at Broadway Direct. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And moving on to Stage Door Sessions, our guests today are very special from one of my favorite Tony nominees. That is the Pulitzer Prize winning Fat Ham. We have the playwright James Imes and his director, Sahim Ali. Fat Ham is now running at the American Airlines Theater. And here's our conversation. have been produced by numerous high-profile companies, including Steppenwolf, the National Black Theater, Sympatico Theater, Wilma Theater, and The Public, where Fat Ham had its New York premiere to wide acclaim last year, not long after winning the Pulitzer. 
James has won numerous other honors for his plays, among them the Whiting Award, the Terrence McNally New Play Award, and two Steinberg Prizes. He's also won awards as a director and noticed for his work as an educator, and he's a founding member of Orbiter 3, Philadelphia's first playwright-producing collective. Sahim is Associate Artistic Director and Resident Director at The Public, where he's received high praise for his innovative interpretations of Shakespeare. And he's proven equally resourceful with contemporary playwrights, from Anna Devere Smith to Jocelyn Bio and Donye Our Love, in productions at other leading New York companies like Signature and Atlantic and major regional theaters. And Sahim has his own collection of prestigious honors, including the Schubert and Sir John Gilgood Fellowships. James, Sahim, welcome to Stage Door Sessions. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today. Thanks for having us. So it seems like a dream marriage, pairing you, Sahim, who's done such forward-thinking work with Shakespeare, with this work of yours, James, which we should say is very loosely based on Hamlet. Uh, The Hamlet figure here is Juicy, who is a Black, queer, Southern college student with some very heavy family baggage. The family business involves barbecue, and there are parallels with other Shakespearean characters here. So maybe tell us just a bit about the play and how it brought the two of you together. Well, um, as you said, the play is adapted from Hamlet. I first was introduced to Hamlet in college. I did a a student-directed production of it, and it just stuck with me. And then maybe about eight years ago, I started to like think about working with a Shakespeare to to do an adaptation, and Hamlet just kept rising to the surface. And um, I wrote it, wrote the first draft of it pretty quickly, and then sort of workshopped it in a few places. And like Sahim is one of the people that I once a play is ready for people to see it, he's one of the first people I send a play to. One, because he has just such an amazing dramaturgical mind about scripts and how plays work and what is theatrical and what's interesting to watch. And also he just like, I don't know, like I I, I like talking to him about plays. And so it, it's always nice to sort of get his perspective. Um, and so when I finished this play, I sent it to him um, almost immediately. Um just to get his thoughts on it. And, um, and then around that time, the, there was the lockdown. It wasn't long after that, that the world shut down. And that's, we, we both were sort of sitting with this play that we really loved um, at our homes. Mm. So I imagine there was a lot of correspondence online. Yeah. And text message. We text. <laughs> we do. We text very frequently. <laughs> Uh, James, I read an interview that you gave last year where you spoke about your motivation and and your mission, really. You said that you were very much preoccupied with legacy and inheritance and that you write about Black people because you want to be a good steward of the stories and culture and history of Black people. Uh, For those who haven't seen the play yet, talk a little bit about how that manifests itself in Fat Ham. Well, it's uh, it is an all black cast set in the South. Uh, in, in my imagining of it, it's set in North Carolina, and I don't shy away from um, my distinct experience of being black growing up in North Carolina. It's it's very much on full display. The ways of speaking, the way people dress, the way people um, take care of each other—you know—all of that stuff is is wrapped up in it. And I, I wanted to 
make sure that the characters were not stereotypes, that they weren't sort of growing out of preconceived ideas of what uh, we think Black people in the South are, but they truly were going to constantly be upending what an audience expects from people like this. And I think that's one of the things that makes the play exciting for people is that you don't really know what's coming because these characters often don't behave the way we expect them to behave. They don't use the language we expect them to use. Mm. Um, And there was something about that that felt really Shakespearean, like (laughs) the way the characters speak. There's There's a music, there's a heightenedness to it that I also associate with the way that people in my community that I grew up in spoke, um, the way they told stories, the way they gossiped, the way they prayed. Like, these are all things that always felt very heightened and stylized to me. So it, it felt very natural to bring those qualities to uh, an adaptation of Hamlet. Yeah. Now, Sahim, you grew up in Nairobi and sort of got bitten by the theater bug I've, I've heard on a trip to London, seeing Greece, <laughs> of all things. Is that right? Greece was yes. your yes. big exposure? <laughs> and, um, yes. And then I think Shakespeare in the Park, and particularly its mobile unit later, made a big impression after you became serious about studying theater in terms of getting you thinking about how to make theater more accessible. Fatham deals with a very particular time and a particular culture. So how did you incorporate those specifics in a play and a production that speaks to everyone? Well, I, for me, Shakespeare, when done in its original textual form, has to feel contemporary and fresh and alive. So mm-hmm. I found different ways of doing that by putting it in settings that are, are contemporary, that are relatable, where the costumes nice. and um, the the objects that they use and the environments that they're in are in our contemporary world. So Twelfth Night, I said it in Miami and South Beach because that's a that's a place that has like music and and um, is close to Cuba. Because in my imagining, it was you know that Viola and Sebastian were coming were like shipwrecked coming on a boat from Cuba to America. Um, and when I said Merry Wives, I said it in Harlem, um, in an African diaspora community there. So they may have spoken Shakespeare's text, but then they were like, uh, it was with um, a musicality and an ease that is contemporary because that, for me, that's exciting. I don't want to see Shakespeare done in some kind of old school, traditional version, whatever that means. It's just always for me so much more alive when it feels like it's uh, in conversation with uh, something that's more contemporary. So reading Fat Ham was just extraordinary because James already has that on the page. It already like intersects the classical with the contemporary and yeah. reverence to like the original, but also a deep irreverence and an understanding of like theatrical structure and, and form, but also surprising you in terms of what the tone does. So it's that the perfect kind of melting pot of like what it, what it means to take a piece of theater that feels fresher to life today that is borrowing elements and characters from something that's very old. Yeah, yeah. One of the first reviews I read of Fatham described it as a tragedy smothered in a comedy. And when I saw it at the public, something that struck me, aside from how funny and imaginative and insightful it is, is that it must have been challenging to cast, but also fun to rehearse. That once you got that team who could juggle that comedy, which is, according to a lot of actors I speak with, you know, the hardest thing to do, to do comedy really well. Um, Juggling that with the kind of depth that this play requires, you get that right, you can really dig in and have fun and play. Uh, Can you talk a bit about that process? I mean, was it a lot of fun? 
it was fun from the moment that I read the play to the moment that the show froze on Broadway. I mean, it has been nothing but that. And it's for me, like I want a challenge. I love a challenge. Like if there isn't any challenge inherently built into the storytelling, then I'm not interested because I just have to feel like there's something about the piece that that is fresh and unique and doesn't follow uh, the tenets of something that I've seen before or I've read before. So, and you know, the, the play is full of such life and vitality and there's joy baked in. So um, at every step of the way, finding the actors, conversations with James, uh, the design, uh, or rehearsals, auditions, it was, it's been joyful truly from beginning to end. Yeah. yeah, It's been a real joy. Yeah. How much of your own experience, James, did you draw on for this, this play? I mean, plot wise, it's, it is pulling almost exclusively from Hamlet. Um, right. But I would say that like, I borrowed ways of speaking, turns of phrase that I grew up hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there might be a touch of like how, you know, when I started to come out and I was much older than Juicy is when I started to come out to my family, they didn't wow. have the right language to talk about it. And so they would say things sometimes and I'd go, you, you shouldn't say that. <laughs> but they were always really great about it. They would go like, oh, right, right, right. Okay, 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 great. I'm going to be great at this. And they are fabulous now. <laughs> um, no, I came out like after, well, that's not true. I did it in waves. I like came out to an aunt very early and then it, I did it in waves. Um, but yeah, like that scene where Tidra is talking to Juicy and she says, don't go crazy. That's not a thing my mother's ever said to me, but it's like a thing I could feel from her. Like mm. I can see this is hard. Like I can see you struggling. And I just need you to hold it together. If you can hold it together, you're going to be okay. And that's really how my family held me as I, I figured that out. You know, I didn't, I didn't have an experience of a family that sort of mistreated me or, you know, distanced themselves from me. They were just sort of like, okay, well, let's figure out how we do this. Right, <laughs> and right. so um, there's not much of my family, but there's like little turns of phrases and, and how people say things, particularly the way people curse is, is very similar to the way that I curse. So what, have family members seen this and have you well, gotten any sort of feedback? In so my way? family is going to see the the live uh, production next week. So they'll be ah. here next week to see it. There there was a film version of the Wilma um, during the pandemic that they all saw. So they know, and they've seen my other plays. They they know what I do. They're they're ready for. Well, that's it. right. That, that's what, there have been so many other or there are several other productions of this show. So, uh, but this is the next incarnation, the big you know the the Broadway incarnation, which is which is uh, great. You're your first uh, outing here. Um, it would not have been a given, speaking of that, that a work by a young playwright looking at this family could be produced on Broadway even five or 10 years ago. Something I ask artists of color that I have been asking over the past few years is, are you encouraged by the increase in representation that we're seeing over the past couple of years, particularly? Or do you ever worry that it could be transitory or even performative? Yeah, I would. I would say, um, I would say it's it's a bit of both. I think it's a bit of like mm-hmm. an acknowledgement of past transgressions and perhaps like an overcorrection that's knee jerk. And so when that happens, things are going to perhaps 
um, shift in ways that that um, in ways that are not always um, right. But then it's important that that happens because ultimately, like there does need to be a correction because there has been um, a lack of access for artists of color in ways and. There are those of us for whom like it's it is time and there are those of us for whom it's not yet time. And I think none of us wants to be thrust in a moment when we're not ready, you know, because also like we, we need to be ready to meet the moment. So I think ultimately it's a fantastic thing. It's opportunity. It's access. It's um, and, and we deserve to fail as well. We deserve to sometimes have an opportunity that maybe we're not ready for. And we're like, OK, well, now I know a little more than I did before and I'm going to roll up my sleeves and do better next time. So we deserve those opportunities as well. And I think that it's, it, it is ultimately a thing that is uh, positive and uh, perhaps there are going to be some fits and starts along the way, but um, it's overdue. Yeah. 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 James, did you want to expand on that? In, yeah, in I guess. I mean, well, one, I want to appreciate you for calling me young. I just, <laughs> I, I really do appreciate that because I'm, not, really, I'm not that young. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I mean, like, I feel, I feel young, but I am like, <laughs> been doing this a really long time. <laughs> so, and I think that's a part of the reason why, like, I see that I'm quite heartened because I think about when I got out of grad school and I, you know, I'm, I'm based in Philadelphia. I've spent most of my career in Philly. And even in Philly, it was very, very slim pickings for someone like me. I said slim pickings. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it, it's very narrow choices <laughs> I had, um, and I, I one of the reasons why I started writing, you know, really sending my work out into the world. I mean, I've been writing since I was very young, but I could see that there wasn't someone that was actively trying to write for someone like me, hmm. and so that was one of the major reasons why I was like, okay, well, I'm going to see if people will respond to this work. And so what I'm seeing is like there was there's like a whole my whole generation were all sort of feeling this at that moment, at, whether you were a director, or an actor, or a playwright, whatever you're doing, and you just started to like shift how you moved through the industry. Um, and I I feel like that some of that that hard work and that nitty gritty is like coming to fruition now. Like I do think some of it is performative. I do think that sometimes you know we get to the to the plate a little before we should. But ultimately, like I see so many people who have been like in in the industry, beating the pavement, trying to figure out. Me and Sahim are really great examples of that. Like people that are just trying to get someone to say yes to our vision and our dream. Um, yeah. And so I look at this moment as like. Wow, I've worked really hard and I'm, I'm got, I get to like breathe a little bit in this moment because um, I know the thing that we've made is like it's good and that it, it's meeting people with a lot of excitement. And so I don't know. I look at it a little different because I've I've had many lives in this industry at this point. Um, and so I look at this moment as like, yeah, they, I remember when that person was like just starting out or I remember when that person was you know, really down on themselves about what they do for a living. Now look at them, you know, um, I have so many friends that that's their story and they're in a really great moment now. So some of it feels like, you know, the, the, the end of some hard work on, on a lot of people's parts. Yeah. Well, the show marks your Broadway debut, James, and I think it's your second Broadway credit, Sahim, after serving as assistant director to George C. Wolfe on A Free Man of Color. 
some years ago, which is not right. a, a bad gig. No, <laughs> um, Broadway, Broadway audiences are not a monolith, as I was duly reminded by another director recently. But there is never a guarantee that the kind of success Fat Ham had off Broadway and in regional productions will translate on Broadway. Is that something you even think about? Um, I think that they will experience something that isn't a quote-unquote uh, traditional play on Broadway. I think they will be uh, enamored and like sucked into a world that has like vitality and life and joy. And I think they're going to leave like feeling a little uh, pep in their step. So and those and those are precisely the things that happen at the public. And I think an audience is an audience. So um, we will get some folks who maybe have never been to the public and we'll get some folks who would have gone to the public if they had been here at the time. And I think what we've found even in previews is that um, we're, th- they're going on the same kind of journey that we had downtown. So the, the play is reaching and moving folks in a very similar way to what we had before. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, th- I think, um, and and this has also been the experience in in previews. It's it's felt very similar to that that energy we had down at the public. So I'm, mm. I'm I'm feeling really good about moving into opening weekend. I'm curious, had you had anybody in um, either the regional productions or at the public who was not familiar with Hamlet? I, I Has anyone brought that up with you? or? Oh, absolutely. There have been plenty of audience members who had either never uh-huh. read Hamlet, never seen Hamlet. We've had the whole gamut. And that's the beauty of what James did. Like He took a story that is in the theater canon that, but, but told it in a way that whether you knew Hamlet or not, you were still going to understand who these people were. You were still going to go on the journey. Even when they break into Shakespeare text, you have enough context to understand what they're going through. And again, Shakespeare, it's poetry, but it's English. So there are words there mm-hmm. that you will grasp or will understand what you're going through. It really, it's, it's, it really is the sweet spot of um, experience where if you know Hamlet, you'll have a great time. And if you don't know a lick of it, you will still have a great time. Yeah. yeah. And the writing is so brilliant because you can, you know, you the references to Shakespeare in the language are there, but they're not, you know, they're it's very much your own language, James. And uh, the way that is accomplished is uh, is one of the great things about the production. I have to ask you both as a way of wrapping up something kind of silly, but did the critics go overboard on the food metaphors? <laughs> Because I have to admit, that's a real weakness of mine as a writer. I did not review this with the public, but if I had, I'm sure I would have had a really hard time restraining myself. D- did you get a lot of that between Juicy and the barbecue? And Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's like a, a really good, I like it. I think it's mm-hmm. a great shorthand. <laughs> There's this great line teacher says in the play, she says, everybody like to eat, baby. And it's true. <laughs> like you, you get people thinking about food. They feel home. They feel safe. Like mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was talking to, I was on a, in another interview the other day and I was saying that, you know, food and literature means communion. And it means that yeah. you're with people that you can feel safe with. That's why it's shocking when you like read something like Game of Thrones and you come into contact with like the Red Wedding. That's like, what? You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to invite people mm-hmm. to your house and, and kill them. <laughs> and so yeah. there's something I think comforting and and sort of uh, grounding for people when they they see talk of food or they see people eating. And juicy is just like I mean, come on, it's right there. <laughs> it is, it is, it's true, but it it's nonetheless uh, inventive. I um 
I think the whole play is. So thank you both so much for joining us. And thank you for Fat Ham. It really is a feast. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> it truly well, thank is. You. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And for all things Broadway, and to find tickets to your next show, you can visit broadwaydirect.com. If you liked our show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to share and rate Stage Door Sessions so that other theater fans can follow us too. This podcast is produced by Broadway Direct and the Nederlander Organization with Iris Chan, Erin Provaznik-Wagner, and Paul Art Smith, and hosted and produced by me, Elisa Gardner. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again on Broadway. <laughs>